This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 126th episode of The Quarter Bin, we'll be looking at Time Walker number one from Valiant Comics, cover date of December 1994, although from what I read about the issue, that cover date should have been January 1995. But first, a little feedback. We missed out last episode on covering feedback from 124 with Dakota North, so we're covering that in this episode. And we start with feedback from me. I mean, it's not really feedback, of course, but I do have an update. As I discussed on a recent comics reading journal, the generous Canadian Sir Rob Lance recently sent me a couple of issues of Back Issue magazine from a few years back including issue 90, which covered 80s ladies. And that issue had a four-page feature on Dakota North, written by Martha Thomases, the writer of the series. She talked about how her time, she talked about her time founding the magazine Comedy, through which she met Denny O'Neill, Larry Hama, Archie Goodwin, and other Marvel folk. Her first idea for breaking into comics was a pitch for photo novellas, type of book that could be sold at supermarkets. It's not a crazy idea, actually, but the thinking was that there was no real market for a book like that. Now, in terms of coming up with Dakota North, she wanted to make the character as wish-fulfillment, but existing in the real world as well. That is why real-world locales are used, both in New York and Paris. She also addressed some of the feminine aspects of the story, which we'll talk about again later uh, in terms of a feedback we received. But Thomas's looked at the female characters in comics at that time and realized just how out of touch they were. Here are a few of the things she said. I edited a couple paragraphs together for brevity and flow. I would often complain that women in comics, even those who are supposed to be stylish, like Mary Jane Watson, dressed in ridiculous ways. Their skirts were too short and their heels too high to run, or even walk down a New York street, which is likely to have lots of grates and cobblestones. None of the artists seem to know the work of the cool new designers. Comics are not supposed to be real life, of course, but Spider-Man was popular at least in part because he lived in a world that was recognizable in its detail, if not its scientific facts. He rode the subway. He had trouble with his boss. But girls didn't similarly see themselves or their experiences represented accurately in comic books of the day. Women in comics were most often girlfriends or widowed mothers or damsels in distress. All of them were obsessed with men to the exclusion of most other relationships. None of them had lives that looked like mine, or any woman I knew. 
None of them wore clothes I wore or talked about music and movies or a job that were a big part of their lives. The rest of the article is a deep dive into sort of the nitty-gritty, coming up with stories, working with Tony Salmons and the editors and all that. But I think the above was the key takeaway for me, at least as far as that, that article goes, as far as Thomas's reminiscences of her time writing Dakota North. And I thought that that was a fascinating perspective. And there is a lesson there about representation, I think. Of course, male characters can write pretty good women characters and vice versa. And once you start limiting creators to only writing about characters with the same life experiences as the writer, that road leads to disaster, frankly. But because of the specifics of Thomas's life, not just being a woman, let's be honest, but being a professional woman in New York City in the early 80s, she brought all of those perspectives to certain aspects of the Dakota North character that another person would not have. Different experiences, different priorities, just noticing different things. So that was really interesting. I'm so pleased, or chuffed, as our friend Sir Sir Martin of Grey would say, I'm so chuffed about how popular these two episodes featuring Dakota North have been, and I've really enjoyed discovering, again, just how popular this pretty obscure character in fact, is. Speaking of Sir, Sir Martin of Grey, he thanked us for another splendid episode, as he put it. And then he confessed something he'd finally figured out about the lead character. I just noticed. Dakota North is North Dakota. Flipped. Am genius. He also gave his opinion about how to pronounce the name of the artist on that issue, which I said as Tony Salmons. Martin disagreed. P.S. No way is that L pronounced. It's too fishy. And I was afraid to ask what he thought of the music in that episode, as it is different from the standard for these episodes, but I've learned that if you don't hear from Sir Sir Martin about the music, you probably did an okay job. Now, the music did generate a question from Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower 1, from the Feathers and Foes podcast. Is there something significant to the music you're using in this episode, she asked. And I answered that it seemed like the mid-80s-ness of the story and character needed a rock soundtrack. And to me, it's hard to beat David Zafiro on his rock instrumentals. Now, this information was on the blog post for that episode, but I didn't say it during the episode. That specific track, by the way, was Bottle Top from Zafiro's 1994 album, Yesterday's Left Behind. Now, Laurel allowed that for that episode, but did reiterate her preference for good old-fashioned Wagner. Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, wanted to know if that episode was part of our new Dial DN for Dakota North coverage. (laughs) To that, Dr. Ange responded, channeling his inner shag, which is never a good thing. But Ange asked, is this Dial H for hot? (laughs) Sir, I was Joe was excited for the episode. Nice, I dig Dakota. Matt Moore commented as well, yes picked up the trade, and was transported back to my teen years. Because you 
hung out with supermodels in Paris when you were a teen? Is this one of those humble brags, Matt? Mike Peacock from Justice's First Dawn retweeted the episode with the comment, Professor Allen and Dakota North, both brilliant and both equally beautiful enough for cover spreads. Thank you? Let's move on from that bit of awkwardness, okay? I'll just point out that Sean from Secret Wars and Beyond and a recent guest of this very podcast said that he loved that Brubaker brought Dakota North back in his Daredevil run. This is one of the glories of the quarter bins. There are just some forgotten treasures in there sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. And I love that this podcast has become a place for us all to talk about those forgotten treasures, including the greatness of Dakota North. I remember when I pulled number one out of the box a couple of years ago from the no longer in business in the ballpark store. I was only vaguely, and I mean vaguely, familiar with the character. It rang a very distant bell. But I thought, what the heck, this looks cool. And you know what? It was pretty cool. We also heard from Luke Giaconetti, who, not to brag, I've met in person. Professor, wanted to drop you a quick line and say I enjoyed the double feature plus bonus coverage of Dakota North on Quarterbin 124. I've seen one or two of her comics in cheapy bins over the years, and I have to admit, if I can find them cheap, I will probably pick them up as I, too, like comics other than the ones starring what Stan Lee used to call the long underwear crowd. You mentioned the concept of a cell phone throwing a wrench in private investigator stories, as well as your take on Dakota as a potential Netflix star. Well, in the second season of Jessica Jones, another of Marvel's roster of female PIs, our titular heroine does a lot of detective work with her cell phone including locating somebody by using a dating app to triangulate their cell phone's location. Like the popular idea that a cell phone ruins horror movies, technological advances means you cannot rely on the same old storytelling tropes and have to find new ways to incorporate said technology. And personally, I would love to see Dakota pop up on Jessica Jones, if not in her own series at some point. Looking forward to the upcoming teased books. Thanks, Luke. That is a good point about technology and PIs, Luke. It doesn't make the work obsolete. It just changes the nature of the job. And it is, of course, always good to hear from Luke, who was the host of Earth Destruction Directive and co-host of both Get Back to the Rasslin' and the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And from our good, great friend, Vera Wild. Dear Professor, just finished listening to your coverage of Dakota North. It sounds like an interesting little title, and it's a shame that the character has been just kind of left on the vine in the years since. I suspect the niche she might have filled in a revival is currently occupied by Jessica Jones, which makes her return feel all the more less likely. Just hope that she's so far off the radar that she doesn't eventually turn up just to get killed to raise the stakes for some event or other. Now, of course, that could happen on either TV, like Luke said, or in the comics. So we do have to worry about Dakota's faith. That's a, that's a good point, Vera. But Vera mainly wrote to address my waffling on the question of whether or not the writer, being a woman, 
lessens some of the problematic elements, including the terribly timed shopping trip. Short answer, Vera says, is no, that doesn't make it more okay. Just like a male writer is capable of writing a fully fleshed out and unique female character, a female writer is capable of delving into troubling tropes and character cliches. Oh, hello there, Stephanie Meyer. And just as the former shouldn't earn an automatic pat on the back, the latter shouldn't earn an automatic pass. That being said, I'd be very curious as to how such elements ended up on the page. I figure there are three options. Editorial influence for more overtly feminine direction for the character at times. Self-imposed forcing of those elements out of trying to match what she felt were the expectations of the character. So not told so, but believing she had to anyway. Or maybe she generally didn't see the problem. Now, which is true will affect how much blame Martha Thomas should carry, but that has no impact on the issues themselves. Imposed by external forces or by the author herself, a problem is still a problem. I am glad that it only seemed to be a handful of instances and not a persistent underlying flaw in the fundamental makeup of the character, as opposed to, say, looker, so I'll wrap up by saying that recognizing problems and not just giving a pass is not the same as condemning a work. We live in a hate-it-love-it age of media punditry that leaves little room for it was good, but, or it doesn't work, and yet. Keep up the great work sincerely. Vera Wilde, gender-fluid burlesque queen and self-published author, and Vera doesn't say it, that the book that she authored is called Skirting gender. I really appreciate Vera's take on this topic of discussing a product from the past, which is not to condemn a work entirely, if a little bit or a big bit, is appropriate for that time, but not appropriate for this time. My own take on this as someone with just over 50 years of, let's call it life experience, is that however advanced and mature and modern we think our views are now, in 25 years, people not yet born will be in college seminars condemning and criticizing and tearing apart those views as retrograde or possibly hateful. Because whatever the compelling driving force and opinions in society will be then, we're not even thinking about those things now, or certainly not thinking about those issues as the most progressive of us in the next generation will be thinking. In other words, the way you feel about the previous generation, the next generation will feel that way about you, that you're backwards and insensitive. On the specific points of Vera's email, which is always on point and well thought out, I lean a bit towards editorial influence. That stuff was not specifically addressed by Thomas's in the back issue article that I read from and quoted from earlier. So that's just a hunch. I wonder if that's also why they added the very awkward teen romance angle to give the story a, quote, female reader-friendly feel. Just a hypothesis. And of course, that particular romantic subplot does not age well. Pun intended. It's always good to have women with agency that pun was not intended, <laughs> women with agency in stories, and there are a good number of those all across Dakota North, so that's a positive. And it is a heck of a fun female-led comic book, 
and there's nothing wrong with that. That episode, episode 124, was forwarded and retweeted and liked by Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Gene Hendricks from Two Two Freaks, Al Sedano, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Mark Sweeney from the ITG blog and podcast, Old School Ross, Dr. Ange, Super Macho Jedi Knight, what a Twitter handle. Gal walks into a comic shop, Chris from Bat Books for Beginners, Jim, a.k.a. the Canadian Daredevil, Mr. Dystopia, Pat from Longbox Crusade, Sir Iowa's Joe, The Sutherlands from Xenozoic Xenophiles, and other shows on the Rad Podcasting Network, ones that are easier to pronounce, Ed Moore from Teal Productions, Tim Price, Mike Lane from the Kirby Cast, which I say this in love, needs to produce more episodes, Jeffrey Brown, creator of the Valkyrie Quartet, and my old buddy Paul the Book Guy from The Book Guy Show. Thank you for all that social media support. It is very appreciated. Every feedbacker as well as every listener. Very appreciated. Let's take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to do some time walking. Guys, we finally developed our time machine. Should we use it to go back and see how Stonehenge was built? Or become friends with Hitler and convince him to stay in art school. Or we could go back in time and get the comic books we missed. Yeah! Yeah. The Comic Book Time Machine. A journey back in time to explore comic books. Good and bad. Whether from seven decades ago or seven days ago. Join our journey at comicbooktimemachine.com. And we're back. Time Walker. Number one at a cover price of $2.50. Meaning I acquired this comic at a very satisfying and easy to compute 90% markdown off that original sticker price. The cover by Gonzalo May, Don Perlin, and Stu Suchet shows a dude in tan pants and a long green coat and a ponytail because 1994 jumping through a portal of some kind. This is, in fact, a wraparound cover. And if we open it up to take a look at the back cover, you see that there's a total of six of these portals that our main character is jumping through. And below each one, we see a building representing a different time period. A pyramid, Colosseum, medieval castle, skyscraper, futuristic cityscape. And running down the right side of the cover, it reads, Time for a new kind of hero. It's colorful in a 90s sort of way. And I'll let you decide for yourself whether that's a positive or not. The story, Ivar the Traveler, was written by Bob Hall, with art by Don Perlin and Gonzalo Mayo. We start with this text box. A devil-may-care rogue. Ivar journeys through the ages, a lightning rod for action and adventure. An immortal, endowed with great strength and healing abilities, he struggles to control the mysterious time arcs that rule the destiny of Time Walker. And then we get some text boxes from Ivar's perspective. Somewhere between time, going through again, drawn into the mouth of time and spat out. When? Where? Yesterday? Tomorrow? Where I was? A thousand miles away? A thousand years? 
the glorious adventure. I like it, and I'll like it better once I can navigate again. He pops out of one of these time portals, or I guess they're time arcs, in ancient Rome, which is good because he knows Latin. He ends up gambling a man out of his period-appropriate clothes, giving himself something to wear. So now I'm a Roman legionary stationed in Britain. First time I've landed here, after the Neanderthals and before Charlemagne. Cool. We learn that Ivar's earpiece uh, compass device isn't working quite right, so a time arc could just suck him up any time. In the meantime, he goes exploring and finds a trio of centurions ready to, well, gang-rape a lady villager. And he takes them all out. This villager is a Celt woman, and his translator chip isn't up to the task of learning that new language. Before they can make their escape, the three men return with a dozen men on horseback, charging Ivar with treason. The leader of the group proclaims that he told Ivar he would slay him if he ever saw him again. Oh boy, narrates Ivar, somewhere in the future... I must have done something really bad to this guy sometime before this, though it hasn't happened yet. I hate when that happens. And just as he's fighting for the Celt woman's honor, his earpiece goes off, and he realizes he has to help her escape before the time arc takes him away. As he flies up into the air, he tells the woman to flee on her horse while everyone is looking at him sort of float away. Unfortunately... One of the Romans tries to grab onto him, and all that comes through with Ivar on the other side of the Ark is that man's arm. Hearing the sound of internal combustion engines, he realizes that Roman armor isn't going to work here, especially in Nazi Germany 1941. But he knows that he is destined to be here, now at some point in his life and assumes that this is the time. Ivar manages to insert himself into the security forces at a castle in the Bavarian Alps, where the Nazis are trying to get captured scientists to build them an atomic weapon. Turns out that German is an easy language to learn, and Nazi credentials are even easier to acquire. And yes, Ivar even does come up with a story to explain that ponytail. He gets... Ten minutes alone with one of the prisoners, ostensibly to torture him, but he explains to the man about his status as a time traveler and that the man's grandson will eventually be Ivar's friend in the late 90s and be the man who fixes his time travel compass. He told me that whenever I land here, I have to rescue you. Otherwise, he doesn't get born and my compass doesn't get fixed. Ivar is able to break out the man and his son, and they head to the top of the castle, just as the Nazis show up. But a time arc shows up as well, and as the escapees, well, escape, Ivar takes down some Nazi swine before leaping to get into that time arc. And he is shot right through the heart and several other parts of my anatomy. But I'm in the Ark, and the Ark will heal me. And on the final page of the issue, he splashes down in a pond in England in 1854, the reign of Victoria. 
You a soldier? A boy asks. The boy had been fishing in the pond that Ivar, you know, fell into. I have a notion I'm going to be a soldier, he says. 1854, the Crimean War, Britain versus Russia, and the charge of the Light Brigade. The end. Now, I have a confession to make. I am a total sucker for time travel stories. And I have another confession. When it comes to time travel, I don't really have any hard and fast rules about how it's quote-unquote supposed to work or a preference on that. If a book or story or movie is consistent within their world, that's good enough for me. I admit I do chuckle at a few of my friends and podcasting colleagues who get hung up on the specifics of the time travel elements of a particular work, especially when the phrase, that's not how time travel works, is uttered by any of them, because here's the secret. Time travel doesn't really work. It's all pretend. Now, a little bit about this time traveling fella, this time walker, this Ivar. He was created by artist and writer Barry Windsor Smith and first appeared in Archer and Armstrong, number 8, March 1993, which was a flip book with Eternal Warrior, number 8. On a recent comics reading journal, I talked about reading the first arc of a more recent volume of Archer and Armstrong, and doing a little bit of research for this episode, I learned that there is a connection, other than all of these being Valiant books, I mean. So there are three brothers, Ivar, Aram, and Gilad, and Ivar is the oldest of these. Now, Aram is Armstrong from Archer and Armstrong, and Gilad is the Eternal Warrior. All three of these boys are immortals, having been granted the gift and curse by something called the Boon, an extremely powerful artifact that the three brothers stole from the mythical and mystical land of the far away. But like any fantasy or SF tale, Once you buy into that initial premise, all I ask for is consistency. And specifically in time travel, there are paradoxes. So I do want you to deal with some of those basic problems or paradoxes. Even if you address them by just naming them and dismissing them, hello, Doctor Who's fixed point in time, I'm fine with that. I'll be honest, the pop culture time travel bit that I like the least is the slowly fading photograph from Back to the Future. No time travel actually makes sense in my mind, but that one, the slow rebuilding of the past, makes the least amount of sense. But that doesn't really matter because that particular scene adds some awesome drama to Back to the Future, and awesome drama always overcomes you know, a niggling little time travel issue like that. So what about the time travel mechanism and rules in this comic? If handling that stuff is so important to me. Well, like I said, I'm a sucker for time travel stories. Billy Hogan recently covered a Jimmy Olsen story on the Superman Fan Podcast, where Jimmy sees his double in a photograph from the past and time travels back to that era to investigate, only to realize later that it is he himself that he saw in the picture. I love that stuff. I promise. I'm not trying to avoid talking about this issue, because more or less I liked it. The art was a bit of a struggle, and the lettering too, interestingly enough. 
both of those aspects made the story kind of hard to read. The letter literally making the written words hard to read. The letters are slanted just enough to be a little odd, and along with a couple of letters, H's and R's are the ones that I remember. They were kind of off-model, if you know what I mean. They were kind of hard to read also. I should reveal at this point, in the interest of full disclosure, that my age starts with a five. It has for the last couple of years, and that also may be contributing to my struggles to read this comic book. But the story, that was pretty fun. If you're promising time travel, then you need to give me time travel, especially in the first issue, when you're laying out the premise. A first issue serves many purposes, but one of them is as a proof of concept test, like a business startup demonstrating to investors that their product is financially viable. And this starts with time travel, which is a good choice. The first thing we see is Ivar popping through a portal right there, bam, time travel. And we learn about the basic rules of his travel. And we see how he figures out where he is. And with this woman protecting her from assault, we see his heroic nature. And then he gets pulled away to another time and place. And in that, we see the dangers of his travel, at least to those around Ivar. That one Roman who lost an arm as he got pulled ahead to Germany a couple thousand years later. That's a pretty heavy price to pay to just try to keep somebody from flying through time. And of course, Nazi Germany is a pretty popular place to set a time travel bit. And I admit my first reaction was, really? Here? Again? But I do think they made the best of it. That section in particular was saved by the reference to his friend, the grandchild of the prisoner. I imagine what happened in a prior issue, now it wouldn't be of this title, but somewhere in, in Archer and Armstrong or Eternal Warrior where Ivar appeared, that part of the story was told. But that doesn't really matter because it was presented in this issue as a fait accompli. And that really worked for me. I believed that. I believed that in the past he had been told by the grandson that he would have to rescue the grandfather, etc. So that really worked for me. I, I, I believed that. Whether it was a part of the character's history or not, that specific prophecy. And that is the kind of bit that I like in time travel. The idea that something has to be done in the past in order to accomplish something that has already happened in the future. That had to have already been done to accomplish what was to be done in the past. I'm not totally sure I said that right, but I think you know what I mean. There's also at least one reference to Ivar thinking something along the lines of, I guess I must visit this place later in life, as that one Roman recognizes him and is none too happy about it. And of course, Ivar has no idea who that person is or what he has, will in the future have, do, done. Again, that's the sort of bit I like to see in a time travel story. This one was entertaining. I have to give it that. The Verdict. On Time Walker, number one, the art was very 90s. Very, very 90s. There's no two ways around that. There's no getting around that fact. And I can totally understand someone who is an art-first reader of comics grabbing this out of the cheap bins and having the automatic reaction of flipping through it and putting it back in the cheap bins as quickly as possible. Maybe cringing and muttering, my eyes, my eyes. But for me, story and character come first. 
and on those grounds, this meets the standards for this podcast. Although with that lettering, it was a little tough to tell all the details of the story, if you know what I'm saying. So this is not overwhelmingly positive. It's not a slam dunk. But for me, especially because of that time travel and how that was handled, this book is worth a quarter. And I'm definitely intrigued enough to track down the recent Ivar Time Walker series written by Fred Van Lente. I can't remember at all what podcast it was, but I have heard Van Lente being interviewed about that, uh, talking about that. And now that I've read this, I am definitely intrigued, and I do know that the first trade of Ivar Time Walker is on Hoopla. That wraps up our coverage of Time Walker, number one, bringing episode 126 of the podcast to a close. Next time, based on a Twitter poll of podcast listeners, we are looking at Marvel Team-Up 65, featuring Spider-Man and Captain Britain from Marvel Comics, cover dated January 1978. And no, Stella, the Russians did not infiltrate this election. It's just that your boyfriend, Danny Rand, does not have quite as many adoring fans as you'd hoped. Matter of fact, you may be the only one. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the episode, this era of Valiant Comics or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky.com at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor!